The Risk of Birth, Christmas, 1973. This is no time for a child to be born with the earth betrayed by war and hate and a comet slashing the sky to warn that time runs out and the sun burns late. That was no time for a child to be born in a land in the crushing grip of Rome Honor and truth were trampled by scorn, yet here did the Savior make his home. When is the time for love to be born? The inn is full on the planet Earth, and by a comet the sky is torn, yet love still takes the risk of birth. The figure on the hill. When I saw the figure on the crown of the hill, high above the city, standing perfectly still against the sky, so saturated with the late afternoon, late summer Pacific light, that granules of it seemed to have come out of solution, like a fine precipitate of crystals hanging in the brightened air, I thought whoever it was standing up there must be experiencing some heightened state of being or thinking or its opposite, thoughtlessly enraptured by the view. Or maybe, looking again, it was a statue of Jesus or a saint placed there to bestow a ceaseless blessing on the city below. Only after a good five minutes did I see that the figure was actually a tree, some kind of cypress probably or cedar. I was both amused and let down by my error. Not only had I made the tree a person, but I'd also given it a vision, which seemed to linger in the light-charged air around the tree's green flame, then disappear. Flying over West Texas at Christmas. Oh, little town far below with the ruler line of a road running through you, you anonymous cluster of houses and barns, miniaturized by this altitude in a land as parched as Bethlehem might have been somewhere around the year zero. A beautiful song should be written there about you, which choirs could sing in their lofts, and carolers standing in a semicircle could carol in front of houses topped with snow. For surely some admiral person was born within the waffle iron grid of your streets, who then went on to perform some small miracles, placing a hand on the head of a child or shaking a cigarette out of the pack for a stranger. But maybe it is best not to compose a hymn or chisel into tablets the code of his behavior or convene a tribunal of men in robes to explain his words. Let us not press the gold leaf of his name onto a page of vellum or hang his image from a nail. Better to fly over this little town with nothing but the hope that someone visits his grave once a year pushing open the low iron gate, then making her way towards him through the rows of the others before bending to prop up some flowers before the stone. 
Today, I get to tell you about a moment in church history, the time that Nicolaus of Mira, also known as St. Nicholas, who grew in time to be Santa Claus, slapped a Unitarian. This is quite literally ancient history. The slap happened in the year 325, nearly 1,700 years ago. And as I did my research this week, it seems kind of doubtful that the slap actually ever happened, but we're going to run with it, because <laughs> it's a good story. But to be able to tell this story well, we need to step back even further to the first centuries of the Christian tradition. In the first few decades after his death, the followers of Jesus struggled to make sense of who he was. They had competing gospel texts, many more than made it into the Bible, describing Jesus in many different ways, giving different meanings to his life, his ministry, and his death. And there were many teachers, clergy, and others all voicing their different views. And many of these leaders borrowed part of what they were saying from the other wisdom traditions present in their Near Eastern and Mediterranean contexts. So they borrowed from the monotheism of Judaism, the, religious, the religion practiced by Jesus and his first followers, the polytheism of Roman religion, and the ideas of Greek philosophy, which were all swirling around these early Jesus followers. They saw good ideas in these other tra traditions and incorporated them into how they understood the faith they practiced. And so different leaders gained prominence and different schools of thought emerged, and there were vicious fights about who Jesus was. And the range of belief then held by people who called themselves Christian is much broader than it is now, as many of the ideas that were expressed then were later called heretical and repressed. And many of the fights then centered on the nature of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and God. Is Jesus divine or human or both? Is Jesus part of God or not? A church historian described it like this. The problem centered on the paradox that the church in its earliest days identified the crucified man Jesus not merely as the Messiah or Christ expected by the Jews, but as God himself, even though born in human flesh. Moreover, Christianity affirmed that the incarnation had taken place through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, which was an active force in the world, and the Spirit could also be called God. So a religion which inherited a strong conviction that God was one also talked about him in three aspects, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church spent its first four centuries arguing about how this could be. The church needed to reconcile its story of a triune God made human, both with its Jewish heritage of monotheism, the belief in one God, and its Greek heritage from Plato, who thought that the ultimate reality of a perfect God could have nothing to do with the confused, messy, imperfect imperfection of our human world. So these theolog theological arguments, which were bitter 
intricate and increasingly mixed up with power politics, culminated during the fourth and fifth centuries at a series of councils of the church. Christianity, then 1,700 years ago, was full of open questions. I think a lot of Christianity is still full of open questions. But back then, people were disagreeing publicly and with lots of anger about who Jesus was and how much Jesus was or wasn't divine. There were no creeds that united the church broadly. So each community or each city or group of congregations had their own local creeds, their local belief, and their local practices. And it's important to note the political context of these early years of Christianity. Those, Christ- those Christians who lived in the Roman Empire, which was most of the Christians then, were horribly oppressed. Christianity was illegal. Christians were routinely killed in brutal ways because of their belief. Christianity was a persecuted minority faith, and to be publicly Christian was to risk death. And that began to change in the year 305, when Constantine became emperor of Rome. Constantine adopted the Christian faith and practiced it alongside the worship of the sun god, which was central to Roman imperial practice then. And in the year 313, he legalized Christianity and made it a religion favored by the state. This ended the persecution of Christians, Christians who had been expelled from jobs in the empire because of their faith got their jobs back. Christians obtained freedom of assembly so they could worship together and have it not be illegal for the first time. And restitution was paid for buildings and things that the empire had confiscated from Christian communities. Meanwhile, all these Christian leaders were continuing to fight with one another about who Jesus was and what his life, ministry, and death meant. And there was an especially big fight happening in Alexandria, Egypt, between the bishop, who argued that Jesus was fully divine, holy God, and a priest named Arius, remember that name, he's important in our story, who said that Jesus was neither fully God nor fully human, but a third something, something in between. Arius, the priest from Alexandria, who believed that Jesus was not God, but something else, is one of our spiritual ancestors. He took a Unitarian position on the nature of Jesus. And he wasn't the first person to do that, but he was one of the loudest people to do that. And so, for a long time, people who took a Unitarian position were called Arians. And this is spelled A R. A-R-I-A-N-S. So not Aryans, like the race from India that has all kinds of other contexts around white supremacy, which we're not going to go into today. It's unfortunate that it's the words sound the same. So there were a few pieces to Arius's argument in which we can piece together only from the people who were arguing against him because everything he wrote has been destroyed. And so we believe that Jesus made, or Arius made his claims about Jesus by citing some of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels about, about God. He doesn't say, I am God. He talks about God as something outside of himself. 
Arius also rooted his argument in the reality that Jesus was born, an event that many of us will be marking in a few weeks. And Arius argued that God couldn't be born. It just isn't how a God is. God is eternal and always present. And so if Jesus was born, he had a specific beginning, and that meant he couldn't be God. Arius wrote that Jesus bore the marks of true humanity, the body's infirmities, the mind's uncertainties, the soul's troublings, the need for divine empowerment through the spirit. And Arius affirmed Jesus as a higher being of some sort. So in the words that our choir sang today about being the king of angels or Lord, all of that fits within Arius's argument. Jesus can be a Messiah or the Christ, just not God. And that's a hard distinction for us to make because for so long the Christian tradition didn't have room, hasn't had room for that because they were arguing against Arius. But there's a lots of ways for Jesus to be something between human and God. Arius was a loud proclaimer of truth as he understood it. And as I said, his belief was called Arianism. And for centuries, people who believed in the unity of God, as opposed to the Trinity, were called Arians. It was much, much later that those people picked up the label Unitarian. And those of you who have heard me talk about church history before know that I usually add some sort of caveat like this, especially for the folks who haven't been with us as long that the name for our tradition, Unitarian Universalism, is made up of labels from theological arguments about the nature of God. And now we have many different understandings of who God is or who God might be or who God isn't. We are God believers, atheists, agnostics, and people with other belief systems. We understand Jesus in a variety of ways, including as a prophet and teacher, as someone especially divinely inspired, as the son of God, as divine himself. And our origins as a faith tradition are in fights about God, and that's where our name comes from, but we now celebrate our diverse understandings of ultimate reality and what matters most. Empires don't have a much appreciation for ambiguity or arguments or uncertainty or nuance, or dissent. And the Roman Empire was no different. In the year 325, Constantine called on the Christian leaders to attend a council where the relationship between God and Jesus would be decided once and for all. Constantine convened a tribunal of men in robes to explain who Jesus was. And he really didn't care about what the outcome was, the historians tell us. He just wanted them to decide on something. So this council was held in Nicaea, the city now known as Izmir in Turkey. And about 300 bishops attended, as well as many priests and the emperor himself. And so to make sure that this decision that was made at this council would be, would matter, Constantine said that this decision was binding on everyone who was Christian in the Roman Empire. This was the first time there had ever been a group that was deciding belief for a much larger group like this. And the church did this several times in the centuries following. And at Nicaea, there were a number of things on the agenda. 
including setting how the date of Easter was decided, because people were celebrating Easter all throughout the spring, and, they, and the, emperor, the empire wanted them to just pick a Sunday. <laughs> they also standardized how churches operated across the empire, but this main focus was figuring out, once and for all, the relationship between Jesus and God. And one of those bishops in attendance was Nicolaus of Mira, who was later canonized, becoming St. Nicholas. He served in what is now Turkey. And there's not much historical fact about who he was that has survived. But the tradition tells us that he was known for his generosity, especially his custom of giving gifts in secret. The tradition also tells us that he was an ardent Trinitarian, committed to the belief that Jesus and God are one. And that is the context of this slap that maybe happened. (laughs) At the Council of Nicaea, Arius was making his impassioned plea for the council to adopt an Arian or Unitarian position. And Nicholas was so outraged by what he considered heresy that he slapped Arius across the face. There's an artist's rendering of that moment on the cover of the Order of Service. And it's actually a fairly common motif in, in art, especially in the Eastern, Eastern Church. The council was sometimes rowdy, but this was just too far. And so Nicholas was thrown in prison for his outburst and stripped of his title as bishop. But not too much later, he had a vision. Both Jesus and Mary appeared to him and told him that they approved of his actions and when he shared that vision, he was restored to his role as a bishop and again participated in the council. And I'm not going to say any commentary about that, but it seems a little self-serving. As you can probably anticipate from the reality that there is not a Unitarian church on every corner, the side of Nicholas ultimately won at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea adopted a creed that was binding on the whole Christian community under Roman control. And it was edited later at another council to take out the antagonism specifically directed at Arius and his followers. But for the most part, it is still recited every Sunday in large parts of the Christian world. It's the Nicene Creed, and it begins, we believe in in one God, the Father, the Almighty, And those of you whose religious journeys have included time with communities who value this creed can probably take us the rest of the way through it. And those of you know that there is a large portion of this creed about the nature of Jesus. The creed states that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And this piece of the creed says roughly the same thing in several ways because the crafters of that creed are trying to win an argument with Arius and those who think like him. They are using metaphor and repetition to argue that Jesus was not born, was not made by God, but is God. The belief that Jesus is fully God is a key piece of the doctrine of the Trinity which is the understanding of God held by the vast majority of Christians now. At Nicaea, Arius and and two bishops did not support this creed, and they were deposed of their positions and exiled. 
And so now, I invite you to join me in the montage that comes at the end of the movie, of the, the movie that's based on real life that says this is all of the things that happen to these people after the main part of the story ends. So I wish I had it actually a real montage, but but I don't. So Arius and his ideas did not go quietly. Arius was readmitted to the Christian communion twice and continued to speak out for his understanding of Jesus and then was expelled again and invited back and it just kept going back and forth. Constantine, the emperor who called the Council of Nicaea, was baptized on his deathbed, which was the common practice then, by an Arian bishop, of all people. And in the decades first following the adoption of the Nicene Creed, there were attempts by church leaders and even an emperor to adopt a more Arian creed, but none of those took. By the end of the fourth century, Christianity, as defined by the Nicene Creed and those that followed it, became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And about 1,200 years after Arius, the people with Unitarian beliefs that we can trace our direct lineage to began to write and think and preach. And many of them were called Arians by the, the people who were writing and thinking and preaching against them because they thought comparing them to the man who lost the argument at Nicaea was a tremendous insult. And Nicholas of Myra, much of the details of his life after Nicaea are lost to history, but he was praised by other church leaders for promoting the Trinitarian belief. They praised him that Arianism could not be found in the area that he saw, oversaw as bishop. And after his death, he was made a saint, and his saint's day continues to be celebrated on December 6th, next Tuesday. And so how do we get from St. Nicholas, the Turkish bishop, to Santa Claus? That's another hard story to piece together. But in the centuries between his death and now, Christianity spread to Northern Europe, and in certain areas, his saint's day was marked by gift-giving, especially to children. And that tradition was shifted to Christmas Day in the middle of the 19th century in the United States, largely because Christmas then was a day of wild debauchery, and big parties and public drunkenness. And the elites wanted to domesticate Christmas and turn it into a family holiday spent at home because that was just too much to deal with. And so then, in 1823, the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas, was published. And that was really one of the first images that we had of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus as this Christmas gift giver. And so, as you celebrate in the coming weeks, whether that's Christmas or St. Nicholas Day, Hanukkah, Solstice, or something else, May you live into the legacy of Arius, holding fast to the truths that you understand and sharing them with others. And may you celebrate with the generous heart of St. Nicholas and a greater tolerance for diversity of thought than he had. May you bring hope where hope is hard to find. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen. <laughs>